Hello and welcome to a special rerun of a previous but once again very relevant edition of Nevermind the Bar Charts. It's from June 2019, which feels a long time ago now, but the calendar tells me was only 12 months ago. This show was recorded at the time of the party's last leadership election, and I did an interview with Tim Farron about his previous experience as party leader. We focused on his advice for the next party leader, as well as tips on what members should ask in Hustings meetings. Both Tim's advice and tips are still very relevant, so here is that episode again. And do take a listen to the episode I also recently did with Tim Bale, where we also cooked up some great Hustings questions. As ever, after listening, take a look in the show notes for links to follow-up information, including that episode with Tim Bale. Hope you enjoy this repeat. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Chart with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Tall. Now, this time we're going to do something a little bit different because we have an interview with a former Liberal Democrat leader coming up in a moment, which will hopefully nicely set the scene for our discussion of the Liberal Democrat leadership election and its state of play. But before we get into that, I believe, Stephen, you have a personal statement for our listeners. I do have a personal statement, yes. At the end of the last uh, episode of our podcast... Available in your podcast feeds. If you've not listened to it, hit pause now. Go and listen to it. Please do rate and review. Um, I I dropped um, a line in which I felt needs some explanation, which was uh, we were discussing the Lib Dem leadership contest and I just went... uh, burst out loud, heard myself saying, it's going to be so boring, isn't it? And um, I could tell that wasn't quite on brand, and Mark winced visibly as I said it, and I feel like... Particularly effective reaction on the podcast. We've we've got this (laughs) technique well mastered, haven't we? (laughs) Um, It was an audible wince to me, and uh, I feel I should explain it, because um, uh, you may remember, Mark, a few episodes back, um, we were talking about Lib Dem leadership contests, and we borrowed the Jonathan Calder analogy, Lib Dem blogger Jonathan Mm. Calder, uh, said that every Lib Dem leadership contest becomes a uh, a race between um, a pardo and a steel. And this was referencing the 1970s Liberal Mm. leadership contest between John Pardo and David Steele. And he defined pardo as the um, open to new ideas, exciting but slightly unreliable kind of uh, uh, potential leader. And David Steele as the a much more safe establishment, um, traditional uh, kind of candidate. And uh, it does feel, doesn't it, that this contest is going to be a steel versus steel, as in two uh, Lib Dem MPs, both of whom served in the coalition cabinet, have been MPs for more than a decade each. Uh, and so are safe pairs of hands, uh, in, in a good sense, in many ways. Uh, it's, you know, it's good that we've actually got established MPs. But... By the nature of having been in coalition, there's not going to be that big dispute about, you know, was it right to serve and um, was the coalition terrible or not? Those kind of debates are unlikely to provoke a fierce contest between them. It's, yeah, it's more likely to be a Clegg versus Hune type contest, I think, in that sense. Minus the calamity Clegg. Or or not, (laughs) we'll have to see. Maybe it won't be so boring (laughs) after all. Um, But just to explain that reference, the Nick Clegg, Chris Hune leadership contest was one in which there was not great difference on really any issues between the two of them, and therefore both tried hard, maybe even too hard, to distinguish themselves from each other, which did result in particular in Chris Hune's campaign, 
uh, overstepping the mark with a, a unhelpful phrase, kind of a calamity Clegg phrase, that is one of those things that ends up being counterproductive and rather undermines the point. Because actually... the Much like the Conservative Party <laughs> yeah, contest yeah, in its entirety. Because uh, that question about whether Nick Clegg was a little bit too prone to saying things that would then come back to bite him in media interviews actually is perhaps a defining characteristic of his time as Liberal Democrat leader. There were, there were a fair number of them. So in that sense, highlighting that point was probably not an unfair or unreasonable point. But, but it was uh, made by Chris Hewn. We will pass over that irony yeah. quite quickly. Uh, we? Well, by his team, I think, <laughs> rather than in person. But using the phrase calamity Clegg was a classic case of, of you, you undermine your message by wrapping yeah. it up in poor packaging. Um, so tell, tell me why it's not going to be boring. You think it's going to be exciting. I can certainly see that it will be important. Let me be clear about that. I'm not suggesting party leadership contests aren't important, that they don't surface really uh, crucial debates uh, that a political party will want to have. Um, lots of policy discussion, lots of worthy uh, discussion about the shape of the party and how it can build on the success of local and European elections. But essentially, for any onlooker, tell me why it's not going now, to be boring. bear in mind, you are asking the person who gets excited by variations in paper design. <laughs> so, I may not be the best person to answer this, but I do think there are some genuine points of interest to think about. And a good example of this is how both Ed Davey and Joe Swinson have been talking about the environment. And if you're interested in political messaging immediately that narrows the field down slightly. Mm -hmm. The contrast between their two different approaches and slogans is quite a good little case study. So Ed has tried to go for quite a distinctive approach in talking about saving capitalism by decarbonising capitalism, uh, which is, to my mind, both a distinctive but slightly clunky phrase. Mm -hmm. Certainly decarbonising capitalism is not the sort of thing you generally hear, for example, environmental campaigners talk about, that phrase in particular. But it is a little bit clunky and slightly ironically, yeah. although Ed talks about the importance of passion in politics, <laughs> his phrase mentions a chemical and an economic system. Yeah. Joe, by com contrast, in terms of making overall relatively similar points, talks about an economy that needs to work for the planet and the people, which probably gets a little bit more of the emotion in there. She has humans in there rather than a chemical compound. <laughs> but on the other hand, you could imagine almost anybody... <coughs> except some of the far-flung reaches of the Conservative Party using that phrase, yeah. about making an economy that works for the people of the planet. So more human, you, you more engaging, and less distinctive. You say far-flung, of course, it was David Cameron referring to green crap, uh, wasn't <laughs> it? Uh, and he was the moderate, the liberal moderate, voice yes. within the party. But yes, So I taken. think there are some differences like that that will be interesting to see how they play out. Um, but for the moment, we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the past in terms of what lessons there may be to learn from previous Liberal Democrat leaders and their experience in the post. So we have an interview with Tim Farron, which unless I've embarrassingly hit the delete key, uh, we, will, we will play in a moment. And then deleted we'll, Tim And we will come back to discuss uh, the leadership contest a little bit more. Hello and welcome to the first interview that Stephen and I doing on Nevermind the Bar Charts. In this case, I'm really pleased to have with me Tim Farron, uh, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, very much still a Liberal Democrat, but with a new Liberal Democrat leadership election coming up soon, we thought it would be interesting to talk to you, Tim, about just your experience of what is it like being a political party leader? My goodness, well, Mark, thanks for having me, uh, first of all, and congratulations on your uh, uh, choice of title for the, uh, the podcast series. Um, what is it like? Well, like nothing else I've, I've done, really, um, you're both um, never alone and quite lonely at the same time. 
um, it, we look at some specifics, I guess, in a moment mm. or two. But uh, I mean, I entered uh, Parliament in two thousand and five. Uh, with the biggest ever Liberal Democrat presence in this place, 62, which uh, was sworn to 63 when Willie Rennie oh, won the Dunfermline by-election. Yes. Um, well, we went down to 57 during the coalition years, but still a big, solid number, and then down to eight, bang. Um, and what's interesting, I guess, to me, is that it didn't have quite the same impact on, on me as, as a leader, um, because you're so busy, you're surrounded by other people, you're off around the country... Um, I noticed uh, our uh, fall from uh, uh, a decent size to not mm. to an indecent size yeah. more after I stepped down as leader and you suddenly realise you're not surrounded by dozens of people, you are a dozen people. Mm. Um, so it can, in many ways can uh, protect you from, from some of the realities, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot more specifics you can, we can, yeah, we can well, pursue. I, I guess one element there is Prime Minister's question time. Mm. I think for the wider public... Prime Minister's Question Time isn't doesn't get massive attention, but it's maybe one of the bits of politics they occasionally mm. notice. The more you are in the Westminster bubble, the more important PMQs is. Yeah. And I think probably for a lot of Liberal Democrats, that's been one of the real signs of our fall. Yeah. You know, from going from having a Lib Dem leader regularly at PMQs that's to right. it being an occasional right. exception. What was your what was your perspective on PMQs? Because I guess you, you were never really one of the sort of the the sort of traditional parliamentarians who love the idea that Parliament is all about too many people in a room that isn't big enough shouting at each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I love being an MP. It's a, a wonderful opportunity to serve people and to advance the uh, Liberal cause. Um, I am uh, really rather cynical about um, the Chamber itself and uh, and never really particularly thought that was the most important place in the world. But as you say, it's very important mm. in the sense that it gives you... Uh, a, um, a, a position uh, and during Prime Minister's question time certainly uh, when I first entered uh, Parliament, Charles Kennedy, then Ming Campbell uh, and then Nick Clegg were leader, uh, getting two questions every single week and yep. after the official leader of the opposition um, they were the next most important uh, opposition uh, spokesperson I and mean, I, indeed I was I was Ming's PPS during his time as leader so you got a bit of an insight and then of course Vince's PPS when he had the wonderful eight weeks filling in the gap in between Ming and Nick and of course deployed the remarkable um, uh, Mr Bean moment um, uh, so uh, yeah I think it is, it, it's not frustrating because I think I knew exactly what I was taking on I knew my job as leader was to stop us dying and that meant that um, that was about guerrilla activity. Mm. I wasn't, you know, an, an alternative to the leader of the opposition. Um, I was to use every opportunity to be very marmite-ish to pick our issues, and uh, and so I think even more than most Lib Dem leaders, I, I would find myself howled down by the mm. opposition, particularly when I focused specifically on Brexit. Um, but what's the point in being nuanced uh, when you're only on 4% in the polls with only 8 MPs? You've got to stand out. And I guess there's an implication there about what, without getting into you know, particular names in terms of people who might be running for uh, party leader, but in terms of the sorts of characteristics of what makes for a successful leader, it sounds like there's, there's quite a strong implication there that that sort of scrappy, attention-grabbing uh, attributes are pretty crucial in who the next yeah, leader we, is we had a kind of um a rule of thumb when we were under my leadership in um 
statement to the press office that we would say nothing unless we were first funny or original. Mm. First funny or original. Um, the idea that we just ape, um, you know, the the official opposition and put out a kind of banal comment mm. on every single mm. thing that comes out. Total waste of our time. It isn't going to land. But if you're first funny or original in what you say, then um, then there's a chance that you might well get. Um, Traction. I think uh, you know. The, the now that would be a great test in a le- leadership contest, wouldn't it? it? Would be to get the candidates each day to respond. What is your line? What on is the your line? Because that that almost right. feels, sounds like that's the key skill, rather and than one of the skills is the to realize twenty minute speech. Ability. I'm leaving this alone. Yeah. This is an issue I can add no value to. Mm. I've got strong opinions, but they won't actually come have cut through. And so, don't waste your limited time uh, on something where you're just not going to get cut through. I think the things that. Um, you know, I'd look for in a in a in a leader, whether it's you know the new leader that we are likely to get relatively soon, or in any other contest, you want somebody who is able to make good choices about people. Mm. Um, the most important judgment you exercise as leader, uh, or any leader, um, is the people you pick around you. Um, and so, being a good judge of character is incredibly important, and uh, of uh, understanding what the right skill set is. Empowering people, do not be a control freak, um, because you can't do everything. You need to trust people, but you need to hold them to account at the same time. But you also, above all else, need to have clarity of vision and be able to sum up in a sentence at most what your mission is. And, and I guess that was probably illustrated, that latter point, most clearly, I think, during your time as leader in the immediate aftermath of the European referendum. So I think it's easy to assume now that the party sticking to its pro-European guns is, well, of course, what we would have done. Yeah. Um, but at the time, that was much less clear. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's quite possible to imagine in slightly different circumstances, yeah. maybe if it had been a different leader in post, the Liberal Democrat position being, well, OK... Britain voted for leave, we think Britain therefore has to leave, we will maybe campaign for leave, but in the context of staying in the single market, but mm. yep, okay, yeah. we're, we're leaving our remain credentials to one side, yeah. in a way that very much wasn't the way that you reacted no. you know, in the immediate aftermath, so, but, and that was perhaps the biggest decision that you had it was to a, make? Yeah, it probably was, I mean, the, 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 the number of things, I guess, but the, that, that choice, you are absolutely right to say, was not a given, it was very hard mm. work, because... Bear in mind, the you know, referendum had just mm. happened. Um, there was a whole bunch of people, including some people in the party, who would have voted leave. Not mm. very many, but a proportion. And, and certainly uh, a very significant proportion of um, areas. That is the bell for the German turning. This is, this is not a vote, Mark. Just so, just so you know. <laughs> Nor is it uh, a fire alarm, not, in case any listeners are getting worried no at No fire moment. alarm and not a vote. So we had, one, we had a vote last night. Yep. It was the first in five weeks, which tells you about... <laughs> You know what is going on, or rather, not going, going on in place on. at the moment. Um, uh, Brexit, right? So look, there was no um, uh, certainty that we yeah. would end up. And with, without, and also yeah. without wishing, uh, wishing to push you to name names, I can maybe remind listeners that at the time we had eight MPs, yeah. one of whom was uh, Stephen Lloyd. Uh, no, it's not. I know, Stephen, no, no, that's true. But we had eight MPs, but one of whom, saying was, for example, Norman Lamb, who has publicly expressed a bit of scepticism about how pro-European the party should be. And I think when you've got only eight MPs and yeah. a former candidate for party leader being, I mean, Norman I think certainly is not a Eurosceptic, no, but no. cautious about no. the enthusiasm about pro-Europeanism. Yeah. That must have been quite a difficult decision to bring everyone with yes. you. Yes. So and it wasn't, and it was. We were talking about um, what was then federal executive mm. before federal borders that we have today. Um, there was lots of people to square, mm. and it was a. You knew it was a risky decision. Mm. You were essentially going to challenge the decision 
of the electorate, mm. <laughs> which is not always a wise yes. thing to do. But no, we're very clear we're going to do it. Um, and to, just to be uh, you know, fully open with you, this is a decision we'd taken about 10 days mm. before polling day. Um, so I, we, we worked harder than any other political party to f- fight the Remain cause. Um, you know, for, I mean, we spent two and a half million on the campaign, mm. two and a half million we hardly had. The SNP, much richer party than we are, spent something like £90,000 mm. on the campaign. So just to put in perspective yeah. that we worked harder than anybody else. I say this because I'm about to say that we did take two hours off the campaign, mm. nine or ten days before polling day, to scope out what might happen if the wrong result happened. Um, how would we react? So I often say that, unlike David Cameron, I did actually prepare for what might happen <laughs> if we lost. Um, and, uh, and we decided to do what we did. Uh, which was um, to uh, send me out on the airwaves the minute anybody normal was up, you know, after Mm. 6am and so on, and be on everything to essentially authentically um, uh, reflect the sense of anguish that millions of people in the country would have felt about us leaving the European Union. Because if we didn't fight for Britain's Mm. place in Europe, nobody else was going to. And I also took the view, um, not just over uh, Europe, but on other issues as well. You know, if you're on 30% in the poll Mm. and you've got 200 plus MPs, you can afford nuance. If you're on 4% and you've Mm. got eight MPs, nuance is a dirty word. Mm. Uh, And so we went for absolute, complete and total marmite. Um, And so we chose to do that. And, And I remember being in HQ... Um, uh, later that morning, so we were like ten o'clock in the morning. I'd done the full breakfast round on every, you know, televisual and audio uh, channel, and uh, coming into HQ, people were devastated. But there's this moment where we suddenly realised the membership was going to go through the roof, and we were having our biggest membership surge in, in memory, um, and that uh, was reassuring that we made. So we made a principal decision. It wasn't easy to deliver it, um, and in the days. After uh, it took us two couple of days before we um, squared everybody to say right, we're going to be in favour mm. of a referendum on the yeah. deal, which has since been called People's Vote, but a referendum on the deal, a final say uh, referendum, um, and we got out there and staked our position and pinned our colours to the mast. And just thinking then again, sort of forward to the the next leadership election. In terms of getting that decision right, what would you almost say were the key, almost personal characteristics for yourself? And hence that the party needs to look look for in whoever whoever we choose to be our next leader. So that's a great question. And I think it's, I think maybe it is characteristics. I think it's an understanding of how a message will be heard by the people. Yeah. And I think the Liberal Democrats spend a lot of us, one of our great strengths is that we're obsessed by detail. Mm. But uh, the public don't hear detail or nuance. They'll hear um, something very simple. And we had just lost a referendum to a movement that played to people's guts. Mm. And, and there's nothing wrong with playing to people's mm. guts because that's how it is. Mm. Um, you can be on the right side mm. and play to people's gut instincts and people's emotions. So I think having an understanding of uh, an emotional intelligence, I guess, an understanding of how other people react uh, individually and as a mass to particular messages, that's key. But actually, we wouldn't have made the decision we did um, if, uh, or we'd be less likely to make it if we'd been less clear what our mission was. Yeah. And the mission is survival. Mm. Um, at that point, there's no um, inevitability that the Liberal Democrats would have survived uh, following 2015. The, the eight of us who survived that election could, rather than being you know, the first fruits of a, of a new beginning for the party, we could have been like you know the last eight survivors hanging onto the funnel mm. of the Titanic, just about to go down mm. and 
you know, join the rest of our colleagues yeah. in the IT depth. So we have to, if, if your um, mission is to survive, then you need to do things that give people a reason to take any, pay any attention to you at all. And so we, a, a nuanced position, a uh, single market type position following the referendum uh, would have done us no good whatsoever. We knew we had to be completely Marmite uh, if we were going to survive. So I guess you know we want to make sure that the, the, the leader next time around is very clear um, of what their mission is and the decisions will then follow. Yeah, I, I guess thinking back to the... I, I attended quite a lot of the leadership hustings during the contest in which you were elected um, as as leader, somewhat slightly obsessively so, one might even say. <laughs> but but it's interesting, reflecting on, on what you've just said, is is I don't think those hustings really tested out you and Norman on those sorts of criteria. No. Um, so, for example, one of the classic hustings questions, which is a very reasonable one in many ways, is somebody who feels very passionately about a particular policy area basically saying, do you agree with me on policy X? Yeah. And all the candidates going as far as they possibly can to say yes, yes. with varying degrees of enthusiasm, yes. depending how much they actually do agree. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, but that's the basic dynamic of a large part of yeah, the Hustings I, meeting. Right. So I, I guess it's maybe a slightly cheeky question to ask, but what, what were the sorts of either Hustings questions that you remember being asked or you would advise people to ask next time round that sort of really put... You know, you felt that put me on the spot. That actually was getting to what the difference yeah. between a, a successful and unsuccessful leader is. So I, I think that that's right. I mean, your characterisation is that people will come mm. to um, uh, the hustings and they'll ask questions about policy and principle, yeah. and the and the, the leadership candidate will um, try and uh, deliver the most winsome mm. way of uh, of saying yes, we agree mm. on this particular point of view, and to, and, and you want, to, I guess, you want to have a leader who can articulate our values and our policies well and so you know I guess people will be rewarded um, uh, you know brownie points and mm. what have you and, and votes in the ballot box um, on the basis of how well they can mm. communicate what we think and we believe so there's not nothing wrong with that but I think um, the key thing is in our party um, we don't have wild extremes mm. um, so it's not a case of picking a part candidate of the left or the right necessarily it's actually about somebody who's going to have the skill set to lead, mm. um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm um, of the view that the people I'm aware of um, uh, uh, who are running potentially for leader um, are, are possessing of great skills mm. and and, and are, are good people. So I'm no particular distinction to make. But my advice to the you know the the, the Liberal Democrat in the audience when you know the mm. uh, the hustings you know comes to Nottingham or wherever it is that you happen to be, is ask them about their mission. What's the mission? Sum it up in a line. What's what will you want to what what can you what will you realistically seek to achieve in the next five years? And I'm not convinced that when I, we were asked those sorts of questions, Norman and I uh, were asked them often enough, nor did either of us give and I just comment for myself, necessarily give the I mean I I thought we I think that the mission I set myself was a good one, mm. and I think we achieved it, and I um, and I think we're you know we're we're moving on from there. But I'm not entirely sure that I was 
desperately clear about mm. it, any of the hustings. Uh, you know, what's the mission to get back into government? Well, c- come on. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that gets yeah. easy applause, that's doesn't right. it? But, but the, yeah. the mission is survive, and this is how we're going to yeah. survive. And essentially, it's a two-point strategy for, for me. Um, one was to, as I say, pick up pick a ward and win it, get people to go out there, rebuild from the grassroots. And the second was find something distinctive for us that makes us different and stand out. And for the first part of my leadership, it was refugees, which mm. got us some attention mm. and was a thing that we were passionate about and stirred the emotion and the energy levels of uh, members. And for the second part, it was taking that marmite position on Brexit. And, and the interesting point about the refugees one, just sort of... Uh, sort of coming to my sort of final question is that I think that illustrated a point that I remember Charles Kennedy making about the uh, it would have been the 2001 to 2005 parliament mm-hmm. that the political issues that dominated that parliament had been almost completely absent at the 2001 general election yeah and that likewise as you say probably that the two defining issues of your time as leader yeah. European referendum and refugees um, certainly, at the time of your, you know, your le- the, the leadership election, Europe was you know, was was not a trivial issue, as no. it were. But that well, refugee issue yeah. Yeah. was not really on the political agenda, and yet yeah. that became, as you say, almost yeah. the other main issue that you were associated with. So, 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 which which suggests that that in a way, the choice of leader, and maybe also when it comes to the public voting at elections, choice of prime minister, should be a little bit almost less about policy and more about personality which is almost the opposite of what people usually yeah. say. I just wonder how you feel about that. Well, I think that, yeah, something in that, it may be not so much personality, but it's about instincts. Mm. Um, and le- leadership is, a, is an important art, really, and it's, and it's not something that comes automatically to politicians, mm. um, funnily enough, uh, because we're not head of anything yeah. very often, apart from our own little offices. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, and so this, is, this um, hopefully would have boded well for, for both Norman and I, mm. in the sense that... Um, the leadership we demonstrated actually was leading the Liberal Democrats in our constituencies mm. from a long way behind, yeah. close behind, to winning. And that involves setting missions. It means bringing a whole bunch of people with you, 99% of whom are volunteers. So can you lead people and can you give them a sense of a, a vision, mm. a goal that is inspiring but realistic? Mm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure how much I was honest with people that this really was about survival back in 2015 i think i think i was um but i think people you know the people just left um we just left government Mm. you know days weeks earlier than that and so the idea that somehow the party was about to die and it was inspiring Mm. that we'd say stay alive (laughs) Mm. Um, i'm not sure um whether people had quite gone on that that journey but i'm absolutely sure that was the mission Mm. Um, and we achieved it. And the question now is, as I think, you know, um, it looks like we're establishing ourselves as, once again, as a clear third party, the go-to opposition to the two main parties. That's great. That's serious recovery. The question now is, um, will the mission of the next leader be to seek to be an alternative to the other two in terms of government? In which case, that probably means talking to people who currently are not in the Liberal Democrats and might even be our competitors and might also then lead to some interesting questions about what future attitudes should be towards hung parliaments yeah i'm not sure if one should we should dream, have dreams or nightmares well, of hung parliaments well i mean look the um uh we're we are terrified of coalition aren't we there's, a, there's the, the the one of the worst things i think about there's lots of good about mm. i think we did the right things by going to coalition but the, the the worst thing is that the message now 
um, uh, or the moral of the story, if you like, of the Liberal Democrats in coalition is don't do the right thing by the country because it might hurt you yep. as a party. And, and you see, therefore, um, the reactions of other parties um, in, uh, in Parliament uh, being to learn that, that terrible lesson. Um, and so I, I see at the moment, you know, most people you ask them on the doorstep will say, politicians, they're acting in their own interests rather than the country's interests. Well, we did the opposite <laughs> and got punished for it. Uh, but look, we are ever so likely to face balanced parliaments again mm. in the near future. Um, and we're in one now. And if it goes beyond you know, the autumn, if we end up with a, not an early election, we have to somehow make this parliament work without whilst being cautious about the lessons we've learned, uh, the naivety, I think, and uh, decisions we made around coalition. Um, but we shouldn't be scared of working with other parties to try and achieve other things. But part of me thinks, actually, this is a we, Labour Party in the hands of a Trotskyist. <laughs> um, the Conservatives, you know, falling to pieces and in, insofar as in the hands of anybody into kind of, you know, a right-wing mm. version of momentum. It's not good enough for us to think it'd be nice if we came, became third party again. Mm. But also, neither are particularly appealing potential coalition no, partners. So, 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 is it time for us to, you know, to, to look at trying to? Well, we have to work with, you know, change UK insofar as they are a thing, and trying to draw out of the other parties um, a new movement um, of which we would be part. I mean, this is the moment where we decide that we're going to go on a serious fishing mission to establish an, a new force of which we would be the core. Yeah, certainly no easy solutions there, but it sounds like there are lots of very good questions for us all to pose in due course to the leadership candidate. So thank you very much for that, Tim. Been absolutely fascinating hearing a little bit of the inside story around what it was like being leader, especially that major European referendum decision for which I, I guess I should also add thank you. Um, I think, you know, it's, it could have easily been a very different decision and the party's course uh, over the next, over the subsequent few years, would have been very, very different. We don't quite know at the time we record this how the European elections will turn out, no, but it's certainly looking like a very good decision uh, that you made at that moment. So, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I hope we might be able to persuade you to become a regular listener to the podcast as well. In, in, indeed, excellent. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank you, Mark. And we're back. Hopefully, listeners, you are still with us after that interview with Tim Farron. I guess, in fairness to Tim, I should just add that that was recorded a couple of weeks ago, so before the European election results, hence Tim's uh, possibly somewhat downbeat estimation of the party returning to a position as the third party. And indeed his uh, reference in, to in Change UK. And, yes, his reference to Change UK. Um, so, Stephen, what did, you, what did you make of the interview? Um, I... Obviously, very interesting, and it reminds you. Brilliant interview uh, questions, I think. Uh, the, you that was what say, stood yeah. out most. Obviously, was the interview questions rather than the answers. No, I mean, it reminded me um, how uh, good Tim is at um, the pithy phrase, uh, and some. I guess the things that stood out for me um, were um, uh, first of all, I mean, I think you were right to give him credit, which I don't think he's got enough of for that instinctive response the morning after. Um, 23rd of June 2016 when he was the pretty much the only national leader anyway um, that's perhaps unfair to Nicola Sturgeon and probably Greens as well but he, he was the person whose voice I remember as standing up and uh, voicing the uh, I think he used the word anguish of those of us who mm. had voted Remain and were um, distraught I don't think it's too strong a word about the result and I mean if you remember that was also that clip of him passionately addressing lots of 
um, Remain supporters, uh, contrasted with Jeremy Corbyn's uh, instant response, which was, of course, now the Prime Minister has to trigger, art trigger Article 50 straight away. And so you have this real contrast that is, is, is formed the backdrop, I guess, to politics since then mm. of the Lib Dems being very assertive on the stop Brexit uh, front and Labour being uh, on the back foot because they have a leave sympathising leader. Um, trying to lead a generally remain supporting party and therefore a very conflicted Labour opposition compared to uh, a very uh, distinctive uh, Lib Dem voice. I guess the other thing that stood out was um, uh, his, uh, he referred it a couple of times, you know, the need to be Marmite-ish. Total Marmite. Um, total Marmite, uh, and that sense of uh, if you are coming from behind, I mean, not even third party anymore. And we are now the fourth, I guess, after Change UK's implosion. Um, uh, but, you know, we don't have that third party um, status within the House of Commons, and therefore you have to be first funny and original. Um, again, something that Change UK perhaps never quite understood, that need to have something very distinctive to Although, say. Although, to be fair, Change UK did have one moment of almost doing that, which was when they filled in the PDF form that was required to register as a political party, which is not the most dramatic of moments, really, filling in a PDF form. But the way they then walked down the street to the Electoral Commission to hand over the piece of paper in person rather than <laughs> rather than just hit submit on your web browser in an office in Parliament. I, at that moment, I, it did, I did think, ooh, they've actually got a bit of a knack for turning the banal into media-catching moments and therefore had a bit of footage all over the news. However rather than being a precursor to a brilliant media campaign, turning submitting a PDF into a bit of media coverage was almost the, the high point <laughs> of, their, of their PR activities. When, when, when a PDF is the highlight <laughs> of your political party, then, then that suggests something. So um, that kind of marmite first funny original. Mm. Um, uh, I remember his phrase constantly. I'm not, I didn't go to as many hustings as a groupie like you, but um, I do remember his pick a ward and win it mm. phrase, which um, a bit like, you know, stick it on a leaflet and shove it through a letterbox. I and mean, I think it, it's become one of those sort of uh, phrases that does resonate. So uh, I'm not, overall, I just thought uh, it, it reminds you that uh, for all the faults that uh, and, and the shortcomings of the 2017 general election campaign, um, you know, Tim Farron, in a sense, did pave the way for what has become the Lib Dem mm. revival. Yeah, and I think if you look at a lot of the coverage, I mean, Vince Cable is ending his party leadership on a really quite improbable high. I, yeah. think, I don't think even he would <laughs> would uh, dispute that he's ending on, on, a, on a much greater high than really anyone, himself included, would have expected. Yes. Um, but if you look at a lot of that coverage, it does refer to the Liberal Democrats having had this consistent view on Brexit and having been principled on Brexit mm. in a way that although the media didn't really give the party huge credit for for that in the sort of first year to two years of sticking with it, it was an investment in the future yeah. in that sense. And I, I think that's one of the really tricky aspects of political leadership because people can often use it as a rather self-indulgent excuse to carry on failing to oh no 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 we've just got to stick with it because it will eventually come good it's it's the sort of classic uh political party leader concession speech after they've been beaten in an election about well it's look the young people voted for us if we just stick with it it will eventually come good and actually almost very not almost always but very often that party or that leader then carries on to lose again the next time yeah i mean i think we should uh just be a little bit devil's advocate uh there there is a chunk of luck involved mm. in it as well 
maybe luck's not the right word, but um, uh, the fact that Brexit hasn't happened mm. uh, is not something that anyone anticipated as a result back in 2016. Mm. The assumption was that Brexit would happen in one form. Uh, and the, who would have thought that all these people are saying it's absolutely vital that Britain leaves the European Union as soon as possible would then go and vote against exactly, Britain leaving yeah. the EU? So um, the fact that you know the, the people from uh, the Leave campaign, the extremes of the Leave campaign, I should be fair to say, um, have, are the ones who actually have stopped Brexit yeah. is not something that could have been anticipated. And yeah. I was one of those who did wonder at the wisdom, uh, along with Vince Cable, uh, you know, who was not initially supportive of a second referendum, and Norman Lamb, whose voice concerns, and Stephen Lloyd, mm. you mentioned as well. So, I mean, you know, there are there is that chunk of Lib Dems like me who were sceptical mm. of it as a party position that would endure, because the assumption, not unreasonable, was that um, Brexit would be over. Yes, the wars would continue, and you know, the debates over free trade agreement and so on. Brexit will be with us for years to come. Whatever but that fundamentally the decision would have been made and really are the Lib Dems setting themselves up for a bit of a fall here because how do you row back from stop Brexit for an inevitable failure? And I've been proven wrong on that, happy to say. And I think it's interesting that if you therefore think, in terms of both what Tim said about, say, hustings and the questions that, were, that tend to get asked at them mm -hmm. um, and also what the choices that party members now have between Ed Davey and Joe yeah. Swinson... Some of those questions about how good is your judgment under pressure, mm -hmm. I don't think have really been explored at all. Mate, certainly in the hustings that I've I've either been at or heard accounts of, or the media interviews and so on. That sort of you know what what what, what was the? It's almost a classic interview type question mm -hmm. in a normal job interview about you know what was what was the hardest decision you had, ever had to make <laughs> in a previous job or variance thereof. Those sorts of questions are not really being thrown Joe and Ed's way. It's not. Uh, to be fair, I don't think it's easy to do in a hustings because mm. what you want to be able to do in a, in a, like in a job interview is to be able to ask that tough question mm. and then follow it up as well because most people mm. can give a worthy response that gets but that, through. That, that is partly the party's choice about the format of these hustings. Sure, and this yeah. is this is a, a regular complaint of mine that, that we have basically... For a party that doesn't really believe in conformity, we are remarkably conformist and traditional in that there is one format of hustings that's the format of hustings that's been used for several decades, and that's the only one that we'll ever consider using. Fair point, but I, I, mean, I think still you <laughs> He you says, need, moving on quickly, you need, getting well, me off my hobby horse. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to make the point, I think you do need skilled questioning as well. Mm. And I mean, not to imagine there aren't particularly skilled questioners amongst the mm. Dem membership, I'm sure there are, but... You probably need a journalist's inquisitive mm. well, There are many notes. current or former journalists who are Liberal Democrat yeah, yeah, members, for yeah. example. It would certainly be possible to do, to yeah. put people a little and, bit more I mean, on the spot It's been interesting in looking way. at the, um, the Conservative Party MP hustings mm. have involved Katie Ball, spectator, mm. assistant editor, and Matt Ford, um, comedian, TV presenter, mm. former um, political spad. Mm. So it's, you know, even Tory MPs are venturing beyond the comfort zone mm. of a traditional... You know, everyone gives yeah. a five, ten minute speech and then it's follow up questions. Yeah. I of, think the of course, I, I am probably hoisting myself by on a horrific petard here because we are going to try and interview both Joe and Ed for future editions of this podcast. Um, wow. And uh, I'm looking forward my, to your, my uh, questioning ability will therefore <laughs> be able to be fully dissected by you yeah. and laughed at by all of our listeners. Wait for the Inquisition. Uh, there was one other thing I just wanted to pick up on mm. from what Tim said, actually, which was the what's the mission mm. um, question. As oh, that's, I, I, I'd written something down in my notes and I had thought I, I kept on reading as missing in a sentence. I was trying to work out what <laughs> I'd meant, but no, I've written down mission. <laughs> what's the mission in a sentence? Um, you interviewed him. I, I'm, I'm doing a better job of remembering it than you are um so it was that what's in a mission because it was an interesting 
Uh, there was one other person who was at the uh, first hustings besides you. Well, lots of people were at the first hustings, um, but wrote about it, and that was the new statesman, Stephen Bush. Mm. And We're a big fan of Stephen, aren't oh, we? We are indeed, yep. Uh, and Once again, touting for retweets um, <laughs> with somebody we mention in the podcast. <laughs> That's Mark being desperate, not me, listeners. Uh, but Stephen Bush's point was that the Hustings speeches, and this was the first one, so you know they will get better, they seem to be based around the idea of um, rescuing a broken party. It was that sense of, you know, rewind three months, and this, w- this was the Hustings speech mm. people expected to be giving. And, of course, since then there have been two... Mm fabulously successful uh, election campaigns, albeit low turnout elections, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. But there was that sense of, okay, so now you're actually in a position where the Lib Dems are on the up, (coughs) and the party can start to at least think about, okay, once we recover, not if we recover, but once we recover, what's the aim? Where do we want to be in two, three, four, five years' time? Uh, His view was that neither Joe nor Ed had quite nailed that yet, um, that it was much more kind of a backward-looking, here's how we'll retrieve the party, as opposed to here's how we'll put turbo boosters under the party. Now it's, uh, uh, now it's on the up again. Was that a fair reflection? Yeah, I think there, there, were a, there were a couple of sort of good applause lines that were rather more upbeat. It was Ed, if I remember rightly, who, who made the joke about, will the Conservative Party think they're picking the next Prime Minister? Um, but 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 broadly speaking, I think you're you're right that there was not that that for example on on the questions about coalition and you know what would the party do in a hung parliament that came up both in that hustings have come up on other occasions in the leadership contest. There is a sort of implied t- in the tone of both Ed and Joe's answers. There is an implication still that we would say be the third party to Labour and the Tories both being larger parties, whilst. Who knows, that may be the case, but there's a whole whole host of other possible configurations there. Um, and I think it was interesting that Tim, although he was speaking a couple of weeks earlier, I think was the closest to having a, a good answer as to what the party strategy should be in that sense, in terms of saying, well, when you look just how unpalatable the Labour and the Tory offerings are from a Lib Dem perspective, how on earth do we avoid getting uh, um, completely torn to shreds in a hung parliament and then torn to shreds uh, by the voters uh, in, in, in the polling stations at the next election. He, he did begin to have a, an answer to that in terms of how we need to reach out to other parties to essentially build a much bigger movement to make that coalesce around ourselves. Uh, coalition with Farage, I assume you mean. Is that, is that where you're heading, Mark? <clears throat> well, I, 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 there are many things one can say about Nick Clegg's time as leader um, and how he handled the 2010 hung parliament. I would just... I always think it, it, it's sensible to remember that, in a way, other Lib Dem leaders were perhaps slightly lucky to avoid mm-hmm, that yeah. fate. Imagine after the 2005 general election, if we'd done just slightly better and Charles Kennedy had been our leader in a, in a hung parliament where the choice was Michael Howard and Tony Blair. And I know you would have quite liked the Tony Blair option, but this was the <laughs> Tony Blair fresh out of the Iraq war, Tony Blair. That would have been, that would have been really, really tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, actually, on the uh, on that coalition because, of course, the party that's reaped the biggest benefit from the Lib Dem timing coalition, the small party that's reaped the biggest benefit, is the DUP because they had the benefit of the Fixed-Term Parliament mm. Act, which was introduced during the coalition, mm. um, but also meant that there was a lot more time and space available to a potential coalition party than it felt there was, maybe not 
maybe it could have been explored more in uh, at the time. But it felt at the time like the Lib Dems were under pressure. Cameron had made this big open offer, and uh, if it w if it wasn't accepted, he was going to go back to the country, and the Lib Dems would be fighting a second election uh, without any money, having vetoed Cameron's big open offer and to join yeah. the government, and that would have meant that the Lib Dems would have slipped back. Was the sense at the time that there was no mm. easy choice for the party to make? Possibly. But my bigger point, rather than trying to um, relitigate your small, rather than try and relitigate the should we have gone into coalition uh, or how we went into yeah. coalition arguments, is that the fixed term Parliament mm. Act does give uh, a much mm. greater advantage yeah. to a small party looking or a reasonably sized party looking to do a coalition than was the case in 2010, because uh, it's not just a question yep. of being able to go back, uh, straight back yep. to the country. The, the other, I think, key difference, to uh, return to both your bigger and your smaller point <laughs> in one fell swoop, is something a benefit the DUP had, and actually the SNP had this as well when they were, albeit the biggest party, but in minority government in Scotland, and even did budget deals with the Conservatives, which if you think how toxic associations with Conservatives mm -hmm. turned out, to be for Labour over the independence referendum. It's really striking how the SNP didn't politically suffer for that. But I think what the SNP had and what the DEP had, but the Lib Dems didn't have in 2010, was a really clear sense of purpose in the eyes of the electorate that therefore provides a rationale stroke mm. excuse for doing deals with people you otherwise disagree with a lot. Yeah. And that that was the sort of fuel that kept the SNP minority government going, even when it was doing deals with the Tories. It's what has you know, uh, helped the DUP. Obviously, it was the classic Lib Dem, core vote, etc. type issue that was missing for us in 2010. The reason, though, to that extent, 2010 is worth relitigating is the lesson there, to me at least, it seems, is about the importance of Brexit being that thing that justifies you know what are the circumstances under which for example the liberal democrats might get away with voting the same way as a jeremy corbyn led labor party on key issues post the next general election the only possible grounds on which i can see that happening ending anything other than as a disaster would be if it's well actually because this has delivered keeping britain in the eu and if that's the thing that yeah. it delivers then perhaps a whole load of other stuff might be possible to be justifiable and might also end up being electorally neutral or even beneficial rather than electorally catastrophic. Indeed. But of course you're forgetting that um, whoever is elected <coughs> the next Prime Minister by Conservative MPs and members uh, will of course sort out Brexit because they've all got a plan that will mean that it's all safely delivered by the 31st of October and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Exactly. So on that cheery note... We will bid our listeners farewell, <laughs> a cheery at least, uh, note. we will bid our listeners farewell. As ever, if you have liked what you listen to, do go and subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app. We've also got a growing catalogue of back editions, most of which have aged reasonably well. You can go and binge on a box exactly. set. Exactly, binge on... Uh, Binge on those early days when I used to talk about how smartly dressed Stephen was for the podcast. <laughs> he did actually, by the way, especially put on a jacket before we started recording. So yeah. we've not completely lost our early roots as we have grown. <laughs> uh, but yes, please do subscribe. Please do share this podcast with friends and colleagues if you've enjoyed listening to it. And you can follow uh, us on social media. The, there is a special uh, Never Mind the Bar Charts Twitter account and Facebook page. And of course, you can find Stephen and myself all over the internet. Thanks very much for listening.